Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, buddy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dose of Ether. This is your host, Lucian, and joining me again is our trusty co-host, Evan Van Ness. How you doing, Evan? I'm doing well. How are you? Don't sound too excited. It seems like you've been locked inside for several weeks. I mean, the funny thing is it doesn't affect my life at all, really, honestly. Like, I expect, except I have the kids around a little bit more. Um... And I actually, I, I called my parents up yesterday and they, they seem to be exactly zero affected by it, which is pretty amusing. They, they teach like some ESL classes, uh, that they're not doing, but aside from that, it's like nothing has changed for them. That's good to hear. I mean, um, I, I'm disheartened when, uh, people are overly affected by the, this current crisis, um, it's hard to kind of see or predict like in the medium to short term um what exactly is happening i feel like i have to check the uh, stock market like every day (laughs) which is kind of obnoxious because i don't care that much (laughs) and i don't want to be an active investor but i still feel like um it's an indicator on whether or not people have overestimated the severity of the crisis or underestimated it um and it's kind of like judging the pulse of the country and their expectations of the immediate future and while it has been improving i don't understand why it has been improving because i mean the health situation and the actual like handling of the crisis is not really improved (laughs) number go up number go down but if you own any crypto it's just another day another day in the markets <laughs> no big deal what's 30 percent after all it's like 92 percent price swings from the top to the bottom <laughs> yeah like... i mean the you know like a big day in the market and in, in equity markets is three percent right and in crypto that's literally just any 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 random day so yeah, there have been days in the equity markets moved 11%, um, which is low volatility for crypto. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's just trading volatility. But, I mean, development goes on, and Ethereum development has already been spread out. It's decentralized by nature. Um, so it was already set up to be a remote-first cycle, and... It doesn't really seem like much of the Ethereum development ecosystem has been immediately impacted, um, except for like the knock-on effects in volatility, I guess. Because if one market's volatile, then crypto is probably going to be extra volatile for a short period of time. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It could be volatile in a good or a bad sense, as we've already seen. It's had both a 
fast run-up and a very fast downturn. But for the most part, like the immediate consequence, for example, uh, to the make-or-die system seems to have played out. And uh, all of the auctions, um, the maker um, tokens have averaged 256 dollars per token as you've mentioned before which uh, is what you would expect for the amount of uh, issuance that increase the current maker supply to keep its market cap relatively the same um, not gonna lie that's quite impressive <laughs> generally speaking in crypto to have um, like the overall market cap be relatively unaffected while there was a large minting of tokens in order to keep uh, the reserve at its current level. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that proves essentially the market making mechanism worked as much as the confidence that the current investors in Maker had in order to keep its valuation where it is. So I, I happened to see a tweet last night from Paradigm, uh, the fund out in SF started by Fred Arison and Matt Wang that also has some folks like Charlie Noyes and Dan Robinson. And uh, they they said that they were the high bid in 72 of the 106 auctions. Mm. So over two thirds. Uh, and I mean, the I guess the maker was actually the one that that executed those those auctions. So I suppose they were running their own internal auction between the funds they wanted to participate. Anyway, I don't I don't quite get it, but it is sort of interesting to see that, you know, Paradigm decided to be transparent about how many of them they had they had won. Interesting. Interesting that they decided to take a uh an even larger role within their I'm I'm assuming they're already um investors within Maker to have the foundation actually bid for them. I assume they already had to be part of the foundation in a formal way. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they I, they did hold Maker MKR. I don't know if if the main reason for the way it went down was operational or as in just the challenges of getting a bot up and running on your own as a as a fund or some sort of compliance issue. But mm -hmm. yeah, <clears throat> you know, there's all sorts of funky funky regulations and lawyers get scared because crypto is a gray area and so they try to tell you you should be careful blah 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 hmm. yeah. i don't know well it worked out in the end for maker token holders and for the actual proof of the um auction mechanism and yeah for the a 50 percent drop over a single day I'm not sure if that was unprecedented in Maker's history, at least, but it was definitely drastic. Do you still think that it's a good sign for the overall resiliency of Maker long term? 50%? You mean the ETH price going down 50%? Yeah. Oh, that is the worst, worst day in ETH history. Okay. Uh, and Bitcoin, it was also, I mean, more or less the worst day. I think there was technically a day in like 2011 or something. But I mean, or maybe it was 2012, but like, do you really count that? I mean, the difference in liquidity is, com you know, it's a completely different thing. I would say it was also the worst in Bitcoin's history. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, hey, Maker Maker survived. I I do think 
it's you know like it it didn't kill them the old adage of you know doesn't kill you makes you stronger like i think there is actually you know the system got a little bit hard and they now realize that they you know they should work harder on running their own bots i imagine uh as well as you know maker whales also realize that they should work harder on running their own bots um and probably they've realized they need to tweak the system but you know we saw that they managed to you know have the uh the uh the the flop auctions work and that all went down so um yeah i don't know i mean it's one more thing that got thrown at maker and it survived so i think it's uh no, only only good for the system. I agree. Yeah. So let's talk about how you could spend your die. <laughs> <laughs> Smoothest transition of the episode for sure. Um, I wanted to make sure that early in the episode we get you a shout out for your current um, matching grants, Gitcoin matching grants program there's um yeah you have um a open it's not a, called a bid what is it it's called a matching grant yeah so there's a pool of matching money that is uh it's 250k in this in this round of gitcoin grants um which is the the there are three categories so it's 100k for quote unquote tech 100k for uh, COVID-19 responses and 50K for media. So Weekend Ethereum News is in the media category. Uh, it's So that's a pretty large amount of, of matching money. And basically you you vote um, by, by giving money to the people you want to receive that pool of matching money. And that pool of matching money gets a portion basically based, based on your votes. And your vote, is, of course, is donating donating i mean most people donate die but you can donate eth you can donate usdc whatever and uh it's it's in a it's it's done quadratically so if you donate a one die for for example like right now if you donate one die to the weekend ethereum grant i think the matching is 90 dollars maybe it's 80 dollars and if you donate a hundred die then the matching is like 240 or something like that anyway the point is is like it you basically you get you know it's quadratic so you get almost as much benefit from from donating one die as you do from donating a large amount like a hundred you know it's basically inversely proportional to the uh, size of the bids so that it encourages more participation rather than having whales dominate a voting system. <clears throat> so it, yeah, it totally. weighs uh, large donations less at a exponential level. And yeah, exactly. Um, the interesting thing is that all you need is a GitHub account and get basically like just the age or like how much information your GitHub account fills makes it fairly easy to determine whether or not um, you have a real GitHub account as opposed to just creating fake GitHub accounts in order to uh, break up your donations into smaller contributions. 
Um, and this is especially easy to detect since you could essentially trace where the ether came from originally. I don't think people are really using privacy technology in order to try to game the system, but that too would also be noticeable. Um, so it's interesting in the sense that they do account for a little bit of civil resistance, civil resistance being essentially, um, pretending one one person, one vote. Yeah. So that, um, you don't actually mess up the, the incentive structure for this. And because it's, um, essentially a donation, uh, that goes to people, then it's also reduces the incentives. Last time you were saying that, uh, Bitcoiners were starting to talk about this and like that they would actually join these mechanisms in order to Sybil Ethereum and fund their own like anti-Ethereum perspective. Um, but from what I've seen, it doesn't seem like, um, Many people outside of the community have participated. It hasn't seemed like there has been a lot of Sybil um, problems. Just there by was looking. one. There was one this week. A single one yeah. out of like hundreds yeah. or maybe thousands. Yeah, I mean, somebody um, he had a did a token sale in 2017, um, and uh, I mean, I forget his name. He's in Bulgaria. Uh, and his, he did a grant where he got, you know, I don't know, 80 people, which is a, a, a lot in, in this thing. And there were some legit people that donated to him. He's been around for a while. So some people know him and, 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 and donated to him for sure. Um, it was for the title was Synthereum. So it was some sort of like synthetic stitching together of, of some DeFi primitives. Uh, and but he got something like of those 80, 80 people voting or donating one die, something like 50 of them were brand new GitHub accounts, <laughs> um, like literally of that day donating one die. <laughs> right. And, you know, it's a challenge, right? Because like, it, uh, I think, I think like, it's not really against the rules, like to have my dad, for example, if I, if I tell my dad, like, hey, dad, you should you should you should donate to me you know and i send him like five die and he donates five die to me like you know is that against the rules like i would say that's basically like onboarding right i mean like to a certain extent like getting your 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 friends and family to donate to you is like i, I feel like it's part of the game right um uh of course my dad obviously has had a github account for years so he's a different different story he's a developer right um you know, these people, I mean, there were like 50 of the 80 votes or something or contributions, votes, whatever you want to call them. Uh, They were brand new GitHub accounts. So it is a, it's a, it's a thorny issue. And I mean, it, you know, the, the whole part of this problem that is not decentralized is the civil resistance of, you know, not making sure that it's not one person creating 500 GitHub accounts and donating one die. So, um, yeah, I don't know. But at the same time, like, you know, how many normal people have GitHub accounts, you know, outside of developers, you know, do you have, would, would you have a GitHub account if you weren't a developer? You know, I mean, so I actually asked this on the podcast Slack and D has a GitHub account. 
Um, and he's not a developer, but he's just been interested in crypto projects before. So um, in order to like follow and look up white papers and read about various projects, then he got a GitHub account. Um, I mean, I was surprised when asking in my Slack who has a GitHub account, and it actually had a pretty big um, distribution of people. It also, this is a Slack that's like technology focused of early adopters who've been interested in cryptocurrency. And most of the people who are in the Slack have been either following the podcast for several years or um, have been interested enough or attracted to the domain for one reason or another. So we're still tech early adopters. Um, but I don't think that someone onboarded people. Um, I think they paid someone on Fiverr to create uh, fake accounts because there's, um, what's it called? There's like a captcha process in creating GitHub accounts. So they probably paid someone on Fiverr to create 10, 15 and uh, accounts that are very young are extremely cheap. And um, no, they shouldn't count. Because the the economics of it and the incentives of it would then include um, outside services like Fiverr on giving you programmatic access to um, all of these like newly made accounts. So you're literally like paying pennies for people to go through the CAPTCHA process uh, to register new GitHub accounts. And like when you could see so easily that someone is essentially trying to game the system, then just call them out on it and disincentivize it. Because if it becomes a financial risk for them, if they're too obvious, then they have to pay more for the older users of these GitHub accounts. And then you essentially make it a higher risk for them. Um, and it should be, right? Like the You whole can't really disincentivize it either because I could always... I could, like... Uh, I could always buy a bunch of of GitHub accounts like that are clearly fake and then have it donate to my competitor in the media round, right? <laughs> you could essentially discount... And then they would get disqualified if there was a disincentive. I so mean, I, would I wouldn't disqualify them so much as... Um, well, even disincentive, discount. right? I mean, any sort of disincentive. Uh, unless you're just saying you would just delete the the matching funds for those donations i would just delete the matching funds for those donations and oh, have okay. them not yeah. count to the algorithm because it's like it's fairly obvious what which counts are I, real and which ones are not um it, i say fairly obvious it doesn't mean it's like extremely obvious you know um right but yeah there's some discretion yeah right and that discretion is enough to discourage it or at least raise the cost um and it should just disincentivize this type of behavior, um, mainly yeah, because it has to be civil resistant for the mechanism to work. And we don't really have a better identity system in place. Yeah, indeed we don't. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, the incentives of it are they're 
donations and their money coming from institutions that have the discretion of how they spend the money. So they also have the discretion of deciding what account is real and not, right? No one's like obligated to donate money to someone who starts a fake campaign because like because of anything, really. <laughs> they always have a finger on a scale, right? And it's just that like the same dynamic of like where do you fall on the on-chain governments uh, governance destruct um on the on-chain governance discussion it's like i fall somewhere in between vlad zamfir and uh gavin wood it's like yeah i also live somewhere between the north and the south pole right the median is the fact that we have like the mechanism on chain and we've decided on what the incentives are but the way we actually like measure and implement the um the actual mechanism can be a little gray because that gray area is risk for people who are trying to game the explicit rules of it and that would be disincentive enough because of how easy it is to essentially track these type of like self um, benefiting strategies um yeah so you are i mean that is in fact what get gitcoin did yeah um so nice. uh you know it's not a perfectly <laughs> trustless but uh you know it is it is something it's um, uh it's good because if you have rules explicitly, like imagine you have a video game and the rules are hard coded and everyone could see the code, cheating would be so much easier. <laughs> While if you obfuscate the rules by which ha by how you uh, catch cheaters, then it's more of an arms race in which a vast majority of people can play fairly and they trust the like fair implementation of the rules. Um, but yeah, I mean, it does co contradict a bit the ethos of the entire space, but it's a work in progress because eventually, like maybe with newer technology or maybe <clears throat> the incentives of the process can be set so that, um, this type of self-serving behavior never actually like benefits someone. Yeah. So what's up next? Um, should we talk about yeah, Aztec rollups are really cool. Yeah, everybody's getting into the rollup game, huh? <laughs> they already were like experts in zero knowledge proofs, so it made a lot of sense for them to integrate a rollup solution into their uh, privacy solution. Um, yeah, they hired Ariel Gabison um, as well recently, so I suppose that was uh, a forerunner to um, this, this happening. So they say they're about to launch a hundred transactions per second, uh, private transactions per second. Um, so they're technically doing a zk zk rollup, as in they're they're doing the zk for privacy and for scalability. So um, 100 private transactions is, is pretty good, given that they are not only doing the, the zero knowledge proof for, you know, for the scalability, but also like to prove the validity of the, uh, of the, of the roll up chain transactions on the main chain. 
Um, this might be the first, right? This might be the first that actually combines scalability and privacy preserving. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it is. And um, now if, I think that yeah. that they that these will be private transactions, so it'll be the same as Aztec has right now, which is to say that they are obfuscated amounts, but not obfuscated sender and receiver. Yet. Yet. Because that's part of their roadmap. So their roadmap that they've already implemented is um, obfuscated amounts and um, scaling has been implemented or at least announced. Um, And up next is obfuscating the accounts. And what I found really interesting is they plan on obfuscating code execution which I find really fascinating because that would essentially mean that you could obfuscate the contracts that you call and the, yeah, that's, did I interpret that correctly? It's, uh, yeah, that's my understanding. It, I mean, it, that is also, you know, we, I don't think it's, it's been an under thing in, in, in the community, but you know, the whole, everybody's open source, yada, yada, yada. And even if you're not open source, if your code is on chain, then it can basically be, you know, reverse engineered. So more or less open source. Um, It is, uh, you know, if we can obfuscate code, of course there are, you know, people don't open source. Of course, then all of a sudden that you have these code security issues, you know, yada, yada, yada. But, it does bring us back more towards a world that we have today of you know people running closed source for for profit and not having to worry quite as much about innovative business models i don't know we'll see it's uh it's interesting and the world also... does have a way of of not really changing you know like the whole meet the new boss same as the old boss like technology changes but you know, people don't, and things often stay the same, you know, so <laughs> we'll see. It's true, and we have to realize that um, pr- privacy isn't completely private until, like, you don't reveal any underlying information whatsoever. Um, if you think about the way the internet currently works, if you want to have secure communication between two individuals, Um, You set up an end-to-end encrypted channel and you don't let external parties uh, know about the process. Well, of course, this is impossible. That's why we do onion routing and we bounce relayers between um, like an onion network, for example. But it's very different than what we currently do in Ethereum, which is we have privacy by doing the equivalent of shouting in a loud room so everyone hears you and that's why you have security but then privacy is like shouting gibberish in a loud room so everyone hears you but no one understands or it doesn't reveal any information about what you actually mean and that aspect we're not there yet and that's why zero knowledge proofs and zero knowledge proofs as both a scaling solution and a privacy solution have been recognized as uh, such an important um, future development in Ethereum. It's basically because 
fundamental, like basic things that we expect the internet to do, like set up end to end encrypted communication that doesn't inform outside third parties, anything is nearly impossible to do right now. And you could do very small things right now on Ethereum if you have a very high um, privacy requirement. And in the future, that's not going to be the case. So rather than business use cases being forced to fit Ethereum's current model, they could remain mostly the same, but use very advanced technology that we don't currently have right now. Um, And I'm pretty sure Aztec is going to be one of the first people to implement this, especially the code obfuscation. There are other projects that have done something that has accomplished the same thing, like Enigma, but it's worth noting that Enigma has a fundamentally different security consideration because it relies on uh, the secure enclaves on SGX chips, so it has a hardware-based security model as opposed to something like Aztec, which has a cryptography-based security model. Um, which I would venture to say has a near unanimous uh, favorability within the blockchain space. People prefer to have a security model based on cryptography versus one based on hardware just because of past experiences um, with the hardware-based security model being defeated. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, that seems fair to me. And it's also like worth noting that there's other projects that are trying to do this, like EY with um, Nightshade or Nightfall or Skyfall or I don't know. It sounds it sounds like a 007 movie. <laughs> it's like a combination of James Bond movies. Yeah, it, they're essentially trying to um, establish similar security models and. Um, it seems like the Ethereum Enterprise Alliance is um, very much going in that direction. That if we can figure out privacy, then um, most companies will choose to develop on mainnet Ethereum. And yeah, yeah, it's a big. That's if. actually how Aztec Aztec started. The reason why they did uh, uh, obfuscation of transaction amount. Is because they started by you know doing this for enterprise. Um, that that was sort of the idea. I think they were originally trying to do something with enterprise, and then they found transaction amount was the deal was the deal breaker. So, you know, that's what they ended up working on. Of course, that took longer than they expected, and now they've essentially become sort of a crypto primitive company. So, yeah, yeah. Yes. What's next? I guess from the networking, we talked a bit about networking. Which, switch to uh, Peter Jalagi's announcement that uh, his networking changes had in fact reduced uh, bandwidth required on for by 75%. Yeah, that's pretty that? Go ahead. Yeah, so there were two additional message types uh, introduced, um, basically um, about announcing a transaction to the network and also requesting a bunch of batches of transactions and so uh like the bandwidth for propagating a transaction 
went from being uh, basically linear to logarithmic. Um, and then the initial um, like bandwidth requirement for transaction exchange also dropped from being in the tens of megabytes to like 128 kilobytes. So pretty, pretty big, uh, pretty big drop. Pretty cool. Um, you know, this wasn't even something that needed a hard fork. Uh, the clients just implemented it, and uh, you know, it's really, really brought the transaction, uh, brought the networking bandwidth down a lot. Uh, his calculations, I think, were that it was. Uh, if everybody was running this on a if the entire network on AWS, the the savings would be on the order of three hundred thousand dollars a month. So pretty cool, pretty neat little, you know, little trick. It's um, interesting that these types of optimizations just massively improve, like the overall performance of the network. It's, I've. Like I know from experience running uh, geth nodes that the uh, bandwidth requirement is probably like one of the most difficult um, aspects to maintain and optimize because if you don't have a fast enough connection, you almost certainly will never catch up with the main chain. This combined with uh, read writes to your um, solid state drive are basically like the current scaling roadblocks, the reason that gas prices uh, don't get lower or um, the amount of gas per block doesn't go any higher. And um, it's essentially like why we have blocks that are as full as they are. And being able to optimize on one of those two uh, fundamental, like fundamentally limiting factors is huge. And it goes to show you that like, the development of Ethereum itself is um, like ongoing. It's still very much a running live network and not all of the attention has been pulled away to the fancy new theoretical um, ETH2 implementations, which also are working on <clears throat> networking implementations. They're currently implementing, uh, is it dev P2P version five or six? You mean disk v5, the discovery protocol? The for, discovery for protocol for version, yep. That's what I meant. Slightly different. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, right now the discovery protocol will literally go out and look for anything uh, on the network. So that includes like all of the test nets, all of the ETC, uh, every other random ETH no ETH ETH fork as well, um, which is why it can sometimes take a long time to to find nodes. So yeah, Disk V5 is a pretty big upgrade in that regard. In the fact that it doesn't discriminate amongst um, the types of networks that the nodes are, like it basically floods. Um, it uses a gossip protocol, so essentially like tries to find anyone to communicate with and it takes them a while to realize that they're on a different chain before dropping connection. So this upgrade will essentially make sure that they only communicate with things on their specific chain. Yep. Nice. Yeah. So the, what's up next? The uh, discussion around running Ethereum. Actually, before we go on to that, I think we should give an update regarding 
what clients currently support uh, the new networking protocol. The ETH 1.X, which I'm sure you love the naming convention, um, clients that currently support the new networking standard. Because it doesn't really make a lot of sense for you to be running a client that has a less optimized uh, node implementation. Yeah, I think it's actually just Geth and Nethermind. Uh, I think Parity's um, the reincarnation of Parity, which is called Open Ethereum. I don't think they've released anything yet. So, I mean, I imagine that's probably going to be their first release is adding this. Uh, I don't know if, I mean, I know Nethermind does. I know Geth does. I don't know if Besu does. And those are probably the, the four biggest. What's Besu, by the way? I haven't really heard of that client before. Yeah, it used to be called uh, Pantheon. It's the Pegasus out of consensus client in Java. So it has it comes built in with a lot of things that enterprise wants for enterprise chains, private chains. Um, but it also is, is capable of running mainnet. So, um, you know. So then what's Nevermind? I thought Nevermind, Nethermind, sorry. <laughs> I thought that was the job. Nethermind, no, Nethermind is, is a, is in a C, no, it's .NET Core. Ah, um, okay. But um, uh, it is actually quite easy to run. I mean, it's like a, it, it's a one-line installer that makes it quite easy and quite, quite fast and, uh, um, Thomas Denchek, I believe his name is, out of out of London. Uh, Thomas, if I if I got your name wrong, sorry. Um, he he's a great guy. Um, he uh, he's been working on this another mine client along with some some other folks for maybe two years now, and it's you know it's getting to the point where it's it it, it runs fast. I'd say his documentation is still a little bit lagging sometimes, but I mean as a client, it it works quite well. That's impressive that he was able to basically like spin up a client that is able to maintain with the rate of progress and change that is required of an Ethereum client. Um, it's cool. And it's a good thing to run another mind or a Besu node. Uh, you know, it's good for the network um, if, you know, network diversity. Have um, the number right of parity are... nodes really fallen that much? Yeah, it has, yeah fallen a decent bit yeah. yeah i mean parody now hasn't released you know i mean let's be honest it's been in maintenance mode for you know it i mean well they haven't released anything on it for since they announced it so oh wow. say at least two months now or about two months um and even before that it was in maintenance mode for you know i don't know six months so hmm. i think there's going to be a ramp up time for the 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 new the new name is open ethereum uh so yeah it's it's fallen quite a bit i mean you know i think there was a time in 2018 where uh it might have even been the majority of network of nodes on the network yeah um, a slight certainly majority was among miners mm -hmm. yeah it was certainly more than slight majority among miners too mm -hmm. but it is not like that at all anymore yeah death is just the more stable by far and they implemented crazy things like GraphQL and 
um, yeah. the su direct support for hardware wallets, which is really convenient for developers, by the way. And yeah, it's um, I've always kind of just stuck with Geth um, because I'm not probably supposed to say this, but it is currently the refle reference implementation, even though there technically is a spec and um, it's not the same as ETH2 in which the spec drives development. I would say uh, the Geth node currently drives development, um, even though there is an EIP process and there is a spec that it's based off of. Um, most nodes are just trying to like keep up and maintain, um, not to definitely not to understate the work being done by the other client teams to maintain, but yeah, Geth has always just had more features and slightly better support and definitely more stability. <clears throat> yeah, it's, uh, you know, the original goal, it was... Uh, to have at least three client teams that were, you know, really production ready. And I think the problem there is that, um, you know, ETH2 has become a bit of a, you know, a distraction for ETH1, right? Like, I mean, a lot of people are working on ETH2 instead of ETH1. And then Parity, of course, realized that they could go make more money by doing Polkadot. Um, so they left and did Polkadot, um, sold, their, sold their token. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, Geth has, has really picked up the lion's share of, of, the, of the Slack. Um, and, you know, Parity actually kept up their client for a decent amount of time. Um, you know, the foundation gave them a multi-million dollar grant. But, um, you know, it, it's no surprise that this is the way it, it turned out with Parity not, not doing it anymore. They voluntarily so, didn't complete the last $5 million grant, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, I think they, like, the final million, million and a quarter, maybe, but... Yeah, it, it's definitely tough to maintain um, an Ethereum client, because it changes a lot, and it's even hard to keep up as a developer working with the clients. I can't imagine actually maintaining and upgrading the clients to keep up with uh, like the reference implementations and the specs changes. Because uh, there's a lot of research that goes on and then it eventually funnels into the current implementation of ETH. And it's actually really surprising on how much ETH2 research makes it into ETH1. Um, what's your opinion or your take on the idea that ETH1 will or has the potential of becoming ETH2's biggest competitor? Uh, I don't take it that seriously. I mean, assuming that like the, the port gets stated, you know, they just import the state route. And I, I frankly think that's like an ETH2 priority right now. Um, and it's becoming one even more so. Um, and turning off proof of work. I mean, you know what, like ETC already exists, right? So if you're a miner and you want to like keep this network alive, like you like, or keep making money off of your mining equipment, I think you just mine ETC or whatever else is out there on that, that is good for ETH and GPUs. Uh, mine ETC, I, you mean pre-mine ETC and then cash out again, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe maybe somebody thinks that they they can keep, the, you know, ETH1 alive as a proof-of-work chain long-term. 
I just I don't really see it. Like, who's gonna use that if, like, I mean, every, every the whole Ethereum community, you know, uses, uh, you know, uses ETH too. I I I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure somebody will try, right? Like the miners are incentivized to try and the exchanges are incentivized to try to keep the chain alive. But like, I just don't see it. I mean, none of the apps on Ethereum are going to switch to, you know, uh, shady exchanges, you know, a, a al alliance with some miners to attempt to keep the, like the, you know, the ETH channel, the proof of work channel alive. I just <laughs> that I proved uh, maybe, that proved maybe to work really like poorly for Steam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, if that's I worth mean, you know, noting fair, as a counterexample, ETC yeah. does does live, right? I mean, and it still has whatever it has five percent, you know, three percent. I don't know. It fluctuates it between something like two to four percent or something of the ETH market cap, right? So. Um, it's like you know, maybe area. that happens. I just think the the entire Ethereum community, if that happens, and there's a fork that that keeps the proof of work chain alive, like is going to sell. I mean, so you know, at best they're going to pull off something like ETC. Why wouldn't they just go mine ETC? I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> I do. I think it's like going to be a legit competitor, though. Like, no, not really. It, Ethereum has been able to roll out, rather than hard forks, I would say soft spoons, to use the Zcash language, which just sounds dirty, but um, non-contentious hard forks, they, they call the soft spoon. Um, yeah. <laughs> Ethereum has already been making so many breaking changes to their platform with uh, minimal network disruption actually i wouldn't call it there was no network disruption but i would say minimal um negative feedback from the community and even when they had to do it um, as an emergency at the very end of last year um they were able to basically act very quickly within a less than two week time period um so yeah i'm not particularly worried about that um but it is interesting in the fact that certain features that are like still being improved upon in ETH2 will be implemented in Ethereum 1. Um, I just wonder as a developer if the transition and the learning curve will be like smooth or incredibly abrupt. Um, I'm accustomed to having to basically relearn all of like the API schemas every three to six months because of like breaking name changes, incompatible versioning. Um, like we're on version six of Solidity and by version six, that means there are six different breaking changes in which your old code will not work as you thought it would in the new version. Um, so we're kind of used to it in that sense, but right. I'm just wondering if the actual like learning curve will be linear and smooth from one to the other or, for example, I as a programmer have to learn cross shard transactions and handle like state changes from um, like one shard to another. Well, I mean, that's a bad example because we're trying to be stateless in Ethereum 2, which 
which you could technically already do in Ethereum 1, uh, depending on how you build your app. But um, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting essentially seeing the progression. And as long as the transition isn't too abrupt and it doesn't break too many things, because you could also think about it this way. If it takes applications too long to port over their code and Ethereum 1 works well enough to like solve their immediate business use case, then maybe some of the assumptions that like Maker will of course port over their contract to the new Ethereum chain, it's like, yes, they will, like when they're ready. Well, um, <laughs> they shouldn't need to port it over. I mean, nobody should have to port anything. That's the like the whole ETH1 state should be ported into ETH2. So, yes, like ETH1 should basically just keep working as it is, but is part of ETH2. I, right. Know. And, right. and like yeah. the whole like you know cross shard calls and and whatnot and cross shard transactions. Personally, I don't think that's happening in the next two years. But I don't think it like matters. I like like the you know we have these roll ups that have that give us plenty of scalability, and you know we do already have you know like loop ring is is live, um, and there's a whole bunch more that are going to be live in the next six months. Like I feel that with very strong certainty. Uh, so really like once we have the beacon chain live, I think the priority should be to turn off proof of work, like literally, literally to get the proof of stake chain, you know, as the consensus for the current state that we have going on in, in, in ETH1. And then it is to get like the shards up and running, but just as data availability layers for these rollup chains. And then, like, after that, I mean, w w like, if you have 64 shards and you can get 3,000 transactions per second from these roll-ups, like, they, like, I don't see a need for us to have, like, phase two, as in all these cross-shard transactions and EWASM and execution environments. I don't think that's, like, really necessary. So the design pattern is basically just getting used to using roll-ups which should be essentially the same. Um, yeah, no, I, I right see now. what you mean. Um, but there is also the aspect that currently in Ethereum, there is a lot of um, interdependent systems. And uh, the interdependency is like, I would say a feature in Ethereum, not necessarily a bug but a way that you could see this like interdependency between systems is flash loans um, and how some coders were able to take advantage of um, six simultaneous DeFi uh, applications in a single blockchain transaction that basically let them borrow a certain amount of DAI, um, empty out a liquidity pool on another decentralized exchange, take advantage of the new uh, like artificially low price that they just created for themselves, and then exit their existing positions, pay back their loans and cash out with like hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's just like one example of how currently in Ethereum, you could touch six different projects in a single transaction. Um, the ability to essentially like go from Uniswap to um, to let's say um, Compound Finance 
like even in the same blockchain transaction is um it's like fundamentally a feature of ethereum that people have gotten accustomed to and that is going to be one of the first things that is going to be much more difficult to do when we move to a multi-shard system because it's unlikely that all of like the highly used applications um, even if they are implemented as roll-ups will live on the same shard and like being able to interact and connect the money legos so it would um, would be much more difficult without implementing cross-shard transactions then again like the only question between cross-shard transactions is how long it will take it's not whether it's possible, it's how efficiently we can do it and how simply we can code it. Um, I'm hoping that there will be an easy answer to this, but in all honesty, I see that by the time Ethereum 2 rolls out, um, certain smart contract programming languages are going to evolve and this might evolve to either a new version of Solidity or a backwards incompatible version of solidity who knows maybe viper actually takes off and um we have a formally verifiable smart contract programming language on ethereum as well um i think that like the ability of implementing so many feature rich applications in ethereum 2 will make it too tempting to make applications as they currently are backwards incompatible so we could have eth1 state live on ethereum but that doesn't mean that actually using ethereum 2 as it's going to be intended because like it's it's not fully built yet the spec hasn't been fully fleshed out yet um there is some consensus on some parts of it but i think that um there are so many unopened design questions because until you commit to it, you're not really like stuck using that specific technology. And yeah, I I get the feeling that like the ability to have execution environments as opposed to just a singular uh, Ethereum uh, virtual machine um, combined with other aspects, it's just going to fundamentally change how we interact with an existing system. Um, but I agree with you at the exact same time, and in the immediate future, the most important thing would be turning off proof of work, porting the current Ethereum chain to a new consensus protocol using proof uh, proof of stake, um, reducing issuance so that uh, we actually use the um, Ethereum 2 base chain uh, to achieve consensus and then everything else can happen in due time, and there's no rush, as you were saying, because we've already implemented uh, workable solutions for scalability in the short term. And yeah, even if we do implement backwards incompatible changes, it probably won't matter. But at the same time, like it does have to compete with a lot of existing state-of-the-art and... 
yeah, it's almost unavoidable. That's going to be like a completely different development experience in the next iteration, just because of the temptation of how many things can be improved and changed and upgraded in the new um, in ETH2. So that once it's fully rolled out, it's probably going to be unrecognizable from the current way of developing things now. So there's a lot of stuff I could react to in there, but I think we're running up against time. So let's uh, let's move on to like the last couple things we had um, on our list. Uh, you want to talk briefly about uh, the spec audit? Right. Um, so Least Authority conducted a, a audit of the Ethereum 2.0 spec, and um, there were some highlights that um, I thought were interesting to like draw out in a short conversation. Um, the first of which is a quote from the um, their spec audits, which says, since no other large-scale implementation of a proof-of-stake system currently exists in production, auditing the Ethereum 2 specification presented our team with certain challenges and made this review particularly interesting. That's worth noting that delegated proof-of-stake is not proof-of-stake, and there is a clear distinction. Um, EOS has a delegated proof-of-stake system, Tron has a delegated proof-of-stake system. Tezos. Tezos has a delegated proof-of-stake system. This is an actual proof-of-stake system, and their auditors basically admit that this is fundamentally different. And the um, uh, two aspects where they, uh, they highlight like their research or security report, um, because they reviewed the spec, not necessarily specific implementations. Um, they worked on the block proposer system, which is how the proof of stake system elected a specific individual to become the block proposer. Um, they made a recommendation of having a single secret leader election so that the person who is selected to be the block proposer doesn't know it in advance the same way that in proof of work, the person, it's impossible to know who's going to win the proof of work. Um, this is still an open, active area of research, so it's inconclusive, though um, they're currently working on it. And as we talked about earlier, the peer-to-peer -peer networking aspect of it as well. And there are <clears throat> specific problems with uh, gossip protocols and like the various ways that gossip protocols handle, like if we increase the amount of network traffic, we have to essentially invent new ways to handle um, that kind of network traffic with new types of, um, of both censorship resistance, but also spam protection. Um, and these are both fundamentally like issues, research issues that uh, still need to be solved going forward. And yeah, I just wanted to highlight those aspects as well. Yeah, I think we're about near the end of our episode. I did want to mention, we, we talked about running nodes. Uh, there was uh, a guy in Galicia, Diego Lozada, put out a, uh, well, he 
he, he's been putting them out for years, but an updated um, bunch of images for running Ethereum on full nodes, uh, full nodes on ARM boards. So on a, you can look at the list, but like the Nano PC, blah, 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 blah. The one that sticks out to me is the Raspberry Pi 4. Um, so you can, obviously you have to buy an SSD hard drive, but you can run a, on each full node. So you can run your Bezu or your Nethermind full node on a Raspberry Pi 4. It's a fun little Saturday project to get an, an ETH node running. As I said, obviously there is some expense because you do need an SSD drive. But um, if you are, you know, the one of those nerdy people that tends to be interested in this stuff and you want a fun little Saturday project, it is, uh, and support the network's uh, client diversity. It's a really cool way to do that. Um, let's see. I think that's about about it for us. Yep. yep. And if you made it this far, make sure you support Evan on his Gitcoin Grants page. The link will be in the show notes. One die is if if we didn't do a good job of explaining it, one die is a perfectly great thing to give. I think there is like a little bit of embarrassment about only giving one die, but that is basically the whole point is to of the algorithm is to make it socially acceptable and um, financially, I mean, uh, like I said, it, the, right now, I think I, my matching is like 80, 80 die to one die. So um, one die is a great amount to give. Awesome. On that note. On that note, <laughs> thanks for joining see us. See you next week. And see you next week.